Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Bernice Lerner, author of the book, All the Horrors of War, A Jewish Girl, A British Doctor, and the Liberation of Bergen-Belsen. Bernice, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm the author of All the Horrors of War, I am the former Dean of Adult Learning at Hebrew College, and I am a senior scholar at the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University, where I previously served as the director. And so I have many years as an administrator, many years of experience, and I've taught courses on the Holocaust, and I am the daughter of survivors. What was it that led you to write this particular book? Because one of the things that's very interesting about it is that it's not just a book about a Holocaust survivor. It's also a book about a person who was involved in in the response to the Holocaust at the end of the war. So um, what inspired this book was really a question, which is, how did my mother actually survive? Like, what were the particulars, what were the mechanics of her rescue. And I had heard stories from her my entire life. And finally, after after writing another book about other Holocaust survivors, I had written a book about seven Holocaust survivors who became academics in their post-war lives. I wasn't going to go near my own family. Finally, I decided to focus on really what happened. And I wanted to tell the stories of individual lives as a way of making a very important history accessible to a wide audience. And here I had my mother's story, which had, I had so many great details. And I, and Glenn Hughes, the second protagonist in my book, was tied to her fate, her destiny, because he was the British brigadier who spearheaded the rescue efforts at Bergen-Belsen, where she was at the end of the war. 
So I discovered this man who is sort of an Oscar Schindler type figure and that he developed relationships with survivors and friendships with them for the rest of his life. And it was a watershed in his life, encountering them and, and their state and trying to save people. And I wanted to lift him into bold relief. So I was curious about both of them, my mother's story and Glenn Hughes's story. It's one of the things I thought was very fascinating when I read your book, which is you, uh, I don't know if this was your intention, but there's a real contrast that comes up because when you have this intersection that takes place in April of 1945, where their lives essentially cross paths, you're talking about, on the one hand, your mother who is not even 20 years old, who's just... You, who, who's who's gone through the, this this experience, which has really, uh, you know, it's it's impossible to imagine a more horrific experience than the the, the kind that she and, and and so many other people went through. And then you have this doctor who had who lived a very different life. He went through his own set of horrors, but it was also a life that was that was that was shaped by different influences. He's coming at it at a much later stage of his life, and it it really brings a, a very distinct perspective. Uh, to uh, the the narrative that you set up. Yes, it's a, it was a very unusual. I don't think there's another book quite like this that tells the story of uh, a liberation from the perspectives of a survivor and a liberator. And I, yeah, in the in the beginning of the book, there's a map that just shows how each so how Clint Hughes traveled from the west of Europe to Northwest Germany and my mother was from the East and she was deported to Auschwitz. It shows her journey until she wound up in Bergen-Belsen and how really what happened in the last year of the war that took people from completely different backgrounds, life stages, life stations to this hell and what was, what were their vantage points and perspectives and yeah, so I became I had to I had to immerse myself in foreign cultures, both my mother's and Glenn Hughes's that were so opposite each other's. They had such different kinds of experiences. But I wanted to I was curious about them both and I was curious about this man who suddenly found himself responsible for relief and rescue efforts in an unprecedented hell. And what dispositions and experiences did he bring to the task? What sorts of decisions did he have to make? And what did he observe at Bergen-Belsen that affected him? And what changes, what occurred in his personal and professional life that may be traced to his experience of liberating these forlorn Jews that were barely alive in Bergen-Belsen, and of course, having to bury so many dead. And then my mother, my mother was just a kid. I mean, she was just 14 when she was deported to Auschwitz. And she was 15 at the end of the war in Bergen-Belsen. So um, I, there were things that I was exploring as close to her as I was. I was trying to think about how did her sort of hard scrabble childhood shape her, even maybe prepare her? What did she carry to this extreme? What biological endowments and experiences she was a little bit younger than Anne Frank 
and a very different type of background than an Aunt Frank. She had very big responsibilities. She was the second of six children, and she had to help the family, and they were quite poor in this little provincial town in Hungary. And what was she thinking and feeling as she witnessed and suffered this obscenity and abuse and really inconceivable depredations? And then finally, how she had fallen unconscious. She didn't know how she was rescued, but after, how? After when she finally came to consciousness, uh, she was orphaned and she was deathly ill. And how did she gradually come back to life? Hmm. So, yeah, I was interested in how the winds of war brought these two individuals from different places to Bergen-Belsen and what it did to them. I was wondering if we could perhaps uh, explore Rachel Gina's life in a little bit more detail. Specifically, you, you've already talked about how she had this large family that they grew up in in Hungary, that they were relatively poor. Could you explain what their life was like uh, before the war? And uh, what was it that led, what were the events that, that ultimately led up to uh, her deportation into the concentration camp system. So she was from Steget, which some people may recognize as the same town as Elie Wiesel. She lived just less than five minutes walk from his house. I was there so I could sort of trace the steps. And her father and Elie Wiesel's father went to the same little synagogue. And it was a very... Um, it was a very Jewish town. There was maybe, there was about 12,000 Jews in the town, maybe 11,000, and they were 40% of the population. It was small, uh, but people, um, there was a lot of interaction, a lot of business dealings between the Jews and the people who weren't Jewish. There was, you know, friendships, and her life was, she had probably a pretty happy, spiritually rich, materially poor, but spiritually rich childhood, I would say. And she was very independent and knew her way around every corner of Siget. She would deliver orders for her grandmother, who was a butcher, to houses far away, to really nice sections of town. And she knew the, she knew the place very well. She was like a street kid, kind of. But if she would tell you, when I was growing up, she would say to me, if someone were to come to you and tell you that in two months, everything that you loved and that you knew would be taken away from you, your family, your friends, your community, every little thing you owned, everything, in two months' time, everything would just be taken away and gone. Everybody would be killed. And, you know, you would think they were absolutely crazy. So from a kid perspective, this is how she described it. But so that was the deportation to Auschwitz. That was that happened rapid fire fast um, when the Hungarians were um, just in the end, they got they had to kind of cave to Hitler. Uh, I described the sort of political events in the book. He the Hungarians were almost thinking of going over to the Allied side. They saw that uh, Hitler was losing the war, Germany was losing, and but he he summoned Miklos Horthy, the regent, to his 
to Bertex Garden, I can't pronounce it exactly, to his beautiful place in the Alps. And he kept him there while in March, while, um, while his people, well, Eichmann and everybody, and the Germans came into Hungary and really took over. And it was very systematic. It was unprecedented in history. You had about, I don't know, 40 or something German administrators, and they worked with the Hungarian gendarmes and gendarmerie, and they orchestrated the most rapid fire uh, deportation and killing of Jews in the history in the, of anybody, of, uh, of human beings. <clears throat> so you had 430,000 people that were rounded up in these small towns all over the Hungarian provinces that were taken to Auschwitz, and there were all kind of preparations made in Auschwitz for their arrival. Already, other death camps had already killed millions, and people had already been shot. <clears throat> but it was happened very, very quickly in, in where she was. It wasn't like um, when Hitler invaded Poland and people might have been in ghettos for a long time. It wasn't like that. The period that they were in ghettos was quite short, maybe six weeks. <clears throat> and that's what happened. It just, it was very shocking and very sudden, and it was very well organized. Um, the Hungarian gendarmes were in some kind of hotel in Budapest next in the next room over a suite from the head of the police in Hungary was working practically next to Adolf Eichmann and they orchestrated this like unbelievable deportation and they they put they even thought about not having Hungarian police from a particular town stay in that town because they might have relations with the Jewish people in that town so they shifted them to different locations and it all happened rapid fire fast and I describe that pretty much in detail in my book what happened in her family what it was like being ghettoized and then the actual deportation when they were taken out of their homes and what that was like and then how how it was when they arrived in Auschwitz so there, I don't yeah no, I was going to say, there's a sense in your book of, of that the Germans are uh, operating against the clock, so to speak, that they're doing this with such haste in part because as you demonstrate with the way that you juxtapose uh, the two lives, the allies are coming. Uh, you uh, have at the same time as uh, uh, your mother is... Uh, uh, being uh, deported to Auschwitz, you have the Allies preparing their their big invasion of, of Normandy. D-Day is coming up in June of 1944. And among the people who are uh, going to be part of this big invasion is Glenn Hughes. I was wondering if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about his life and what was it that led him to become a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps and, to, uh, and what was it that led him to uh, get such a, a high position in the RAMC that that put him in such an uh, an important post at that moment in April of 1945. Yeah, so you hit on something really important, Mark, and that's what I try to show in my book is how these whirlwind events, the events of war, drove these people together, and what a race against time it was, because after the Jews from my mother's hometown were deported. 
a few months later, the Russians came into that area and liberated it. I mean, it was just, the beds were still warm in the houses. It was just a race against time. And here you have on the on the others on the other side the allies who actually eventually liberated the camp and so i lifted from among them glenn hughes because he was ultimately in charge in bergen belsen and what it was like for him he he was um he this is going to sound very strange but he loved war he was at his happiest in his life when he was a regimental medical officer in World War One, and there might be some psychology to that uh, I'm not 100% sure but he lost his father when he was just two years old and he loved being among men and he loved being a leader among men and he had he had suffered in his own childhood and had his own sort of personal experience of a sort of liberation when he discovered his own let's say athletic prowess when he was a teenager, he became a rugby star, and so uh, when he when he was a regimental medical officer in World War One, he did he served longer than any other RMO, and he he just knew every one of the six hundred men in his regiment by name, and he had he 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 was very he was very courageous. I mean, he would run onto the battlefield and and save. They, you know, just take care of men who were wounded or who needed their leg amputated or whatever it was that needed to be done. And he took up arms, which he was not supposed to do, and he was a little bit reckless in that regard. But he, um, he was highly decorated, and so he had this memory. He had this carried this this experience with him. And when he, after the war, he married. He had a family. He moved out to the country um, because he needed to have he he needed fresh air his lungs were a little bit damaged from the german gas in world war one and then he went to london eventually and was became a very prominent physician there he was an obstetrician gynecologist and he had a busy practice and he raised a family and then on the eve of world war two he couldn't wait to enlist and that's what he did. It, it, he he was very patriotic, and he had a good experience in terms of leading leading people and being there to treat people. And he very quickly rose through the ranks um, during World War II, from 1939 to till he was in the position when he liberated Bergenbels, and he was. He was a deputy director of medical services for the entire British Second Army, which was a huge position. And he just, by his competence, by his caring, he impressed his higher ops, and he deservedly moved through the ranks. And, yeah, so I, I describe that tra trajectory in the book, how he started out even when um, even when he was had a – a much lower position uh, during the Dunkirk res rescue, and how he sort of worked his worked his way up, or was appointed to these various positions. But he was as high as he could get in the Royal Army Medical Corps at the time. He found himself suddenly responsible for a situation for which he was totally unprepared. And one of his one of his great assets was he he was believed in practice and preparation. I mean, 
he rehearsed with his assistant directors of medical services and the casualty clearing station doctors and all the medical personnel. He was rehearsing every aspect, preparing for every eventuality of, of battle. It was all down to a science, like even how long someone would be kept in the operating theater, everything and the evacuation. And it, there was both um, uh, protocol and there had, was room for a lot of innovation, which was necessary at the time of war. But nothing, nothing in his experience prepared him for what he encountered when he first entered Bergen-Belsen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain to us how it was that uh, Rachel ended up in Bergen-Belsen, because you've mentioned that when she was deported in, uh, the, in the spring of 1944, it was to Auschwitz. What, what was it that, that, that led her to Bergen-Belsen at the end of the war? And uh, how was it that she was able to survive uh, and, 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 and uh, as to, to the degree that she was able to. So one has to understand that um, the from the 430,000 or so Hungarian deportees to Auschwitz in the spring of 1944, probably 75 to 80% were killed upon arrival. But there was something else going on in the war, which was the Germans were losing and they needed person power and they needed people to work in their factories, in their munitions factories. And so there was this tension among the SS at, at Auschwitz, whether to let industrialist factory managers come in and choose the most able-bodied from the deportees to work in factories. And anyone who survived Auschwitz, I mean, maybe they had a privileged post somehow in Auschwitz, Maybe they were, might have been selected to work in Canada, the place that they brought in all the clothes, this vast continent, right? This vast country, Canada, they called the warehouse where they brought in all the inmates, things that they brought with them to Auschwitz, their suitcases, their clothing, whatever they brought. And there were people who sorted those things, and they were very privileged. Maybe they could have survived in the margins that way. In my mother's case, she was in the margins of the margins because she was not tattooed. She was just, sometimes she was put like in this cordoned off barracks waiting for the gas chambers. It was just, they were unsure, unsure of what they would do with a certain number of these, what they call depot prisoners. And they didn't, they could surely dispose of them but the gas chambers were going day and night. There wasn't enough capacity to kill everyone who came in, even if they know the Germans prepared for it and they made sure the ovens were in good repair and the gas chambers. There were just so many people that were being killed. So a certain number of them were 
uh, sort of in a waiting period. So she didn't know every day for two months in Auschwitz whether she was going to live or die, live another day or be sent to the gas chamber. And eventually, eventually one of those furniture manager, I, I mean, I'm sorry, um, manufacturers of munitions plants, factory, factory managers came and she, I describe in the book what this crazy making selection process was like, but it was unbelievable really. And it was a miracle how she and her older sister managed to leave Auschwitz together. And from there, it was a story of a year, like what happened during that year. And I'll just skip over the whole middle part, but tell you that in the end of January, beginning of February, uh, Hitler was so maniacal that he wanted just to get make sure that none of the prisoners, none of the inmates would fall into Allied hands. So all those working in those concentration camps next to factories or wherever they were, there was probably, there was thousands of them. Some of them were being evacuated. They put, they sent the prisoners on a death march to be, march them away from the, mostly from the Russian army coming and liberating from the east and march them deep into Germany. And they had a couple, a few places where they dumped them. And one of them, one of the dumping grounds for these people who had already survived so much. These were people who evaded the gas chambers in Auschwitz and had survived slave labor and survived the death march. They were dumped. Many of them were dumped in Bergen-Belsen. Bergen-Belsen was the largest of these places. And people were just from the beginning of February, end of January till until practically the day that the the day or two before the liberators came in in April, thousands of people were just being deposited there, and these very strong people who had endured already so much were dying like flies. They were just dying, dying by the thousands. So I, yeah, I calculate my mother probably arrived in Bergen-Belsen within a couple of weeks when Anne Frank died there. And dying, what happened to Anne Frank was the norm in that place. It was just the norm. There was, in the month of March, when my mother arrived, 17,000 people died there. They weren't given any food, any, any place, really, no habitable quarters, no medical treatment, barely any food. At the end, no food or water. So it was, and... There were raging epidemics there. There was at least, people were dying, had all kinds of diseases, but there was at least three epidemics. And there was typhus and tuberculosis and gastroenteritis. And when the liberators came in, it was impossible to tell for any given patient what they were suffering from, how many different things they, they were suffering from. It was an impossible situation from the liberator's perspective. And my mother was one of those who almost didn't make it. Well, you say it's an impossible situation, and yet then you go on to describe all that Glenn Hughes does to save as many as possible. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how it was that, uh, you know, what happens when when, when uh, he encounters the camps, how does he try to uh, tackle the situation 
and 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 what was and 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 you know how, how successful is he in the end and 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 what were some of the limitations that he that he faced in, in his effort so the thing about glenn hughes that really struck me and that made me want to write his story was his intent he was so moral and so compassionate and the first thing and he broke down crying several times i described those various moments what was it that moved him so and um but he was compassionate and his first goal was to save as many lives as possible so then he had to figure out how and this very prepared organized talented man could not initially figure out how he would go about it and it took a few days to really get his bearings and get help in and impress upon british second army to send to divert units the war was still raging in the area and Northwest Germany, the second army was still engaged in battle and all, there was no, no um, units that could be spared. So he had to really try to find resources, human resources and help from wherever he could. And, and he had to, he had to quickly decide on priorities um, to his priorities were to bury the dead because there was a real risk of cholera. So how would he go about that? That was kind of straightforward and macabre and very upsetting um, because, because they had to continue with mass graves. And then how would he go about saving lives? First getting, getting food and water in and everything was logistically complicated because yeah, the Germans sabotaged the camp before they left. They sabotaged the water supply, the electric supply. So um, he had to get the engineers. He had to get the uh, later the experts in treating typhus and experimenting with various how do you save people who are starving and what kind of meals. And there was a lot of mistakes made initially, and there was there was upon reflection a lot of criticism um but i think that he approached it with what he knew best how to do and he didn't wait for to file papers or to ask permission or to clear things he just morally he just thought there was a humanitarian disaster at hand and he just immediately went into action to try to save people and he did it in um he employed some of the military techniques, that you, strategies such as triage. Like, how do you go about, you know, saving 60,000 people, you know, 25,000 of whom need immediate hospitalization, 14,000 you know you can't save. How do you set up a hospital? Where do you set up a hospital? How do you, how do you get beds in? How do you get nurses? Where do you get people from? How do you clean people? How do you get rid of the typhus germ? How do you, what do you do to prevent it, the um, caregivers from con- contracting the disease? So many, many big questions. And yeah, it was, it was tragic. It was tragic because so many people died even after the British came in. And he knew it almost right away. He knew he was, he knew he came in and he sort of estimated and assessed the picture and he was, 
his estimate was very accurate because he thought he would be unable to save 14,000 people, and he was correct. You also relate during this period how your mother was living in the camp. She was trying to help people as well. Uh, and, and just the, the, the sheer scale of it, how overwhelming it was for both a person who was trying to simply survive and someone who had all these resources and, 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 and training to deal with it. And yet, you know, still oftentimes, as you recount, you know, came up uh, tragically short in, 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 in more than one instance. Yeah, I also wanted to show that how complex the liberation was because even after the British came in, like my mother, it's like um, zooming into the micro. Like what's the big picture? What's happening? What's the context? And then what's happening to this little girl? And what's she doing once the British come in? And then how does it happen that you already have the liberators there and she's beaten up by her fellow inmates? And falls unconscious like how how do these things happen like what's happening on the ground while all these rescue efforts are underway so I wanted to show sort of both sides and in that the book is told by season and this is the spring of 1945 the war is end and or the war nearing its end Bergen-Belsen was liberated three weeks before uh, victory in Europe day and here she was. I mean, here they were. I mean, and what happens really in, the, in this kind of situation? So what happened to your mother after uh, the liberation, after the camp was freed? Where did she go next? And uh, how did she try to rebuild her life? Uh, so this was where I, I, you know, I knew my mother intimately my whole life. But this was where I think in researching and writing the book, I gained a deeper understanding for what she went through. Because when I was growing up and she would tell me stories, she's, she's basically a very positive person. And she even told me some positive stories from the war, certain places she was and things that happened to her. I mean, most of it was horrible, but, you know, she had a way of telling me also some, a little bit, shedding a little, you know, lighter moments. But um, after the war, I, I really realized how much she struggled and how much she suffered. I mean, here she is, 15 years old, and no home to go back to, no parents waiting for her, and no no real knowledge of how very sick she was and how long it would take her to recover and where do you go and how do you begin to rebuild your life and I realized that it happened really gradually over a long period of time I wasn't born until 11 years after the war and I would say that those 10 years were really important in terms of her her coming back to being, uh, to coming back to her herself and some sort of life, making some sort of life and and becoming to adulthood and and it was a process and it all took place in Sweden and she really only had wonderful things to say about the Swedish people and the Swedish government and how they took care of her 
and how they put her back on their on their feet. The Swedish government took in about 7,000 survivors of the sickest survivors and their relatives who survived and really helped them. And with the intention that, you know, in six months after the war, they'll give them medical treatment and then they'll be on their way, they'll go on their way. But it didn't quite happen that way. I mean, it's uh, many people died in Sweden after the war. They were just so sick. And some people stayed in Sweden the rest of their lives. And many people did move away as soon as they got healthy and well. And in my mother's case, it took 10 years being in and out of tuberculosis sanatoriums in Sweden and being in rest homes and having feeling like she missed the best years of her life, her teenage years and her young adult years, but she did manage to squeeze in some some dating and having a social life and having some kind of education wherever she could. She took opportunities to learn whatever she could. And so she... It was gradual. I would say the sun came out very slowly for her, but it did. I think um, I think it was a real antidote to just in the big picture from what she underwent in the concentration camps under the hands of the Nazis to being in this very healing environment for that long a time. Yeah. Now, by contrast, Glenn Hughes... Uh, returns home, and, and as you described, he, he doesn't quite achieve his, his uh, aspiration. He had these hopes of, of remaining in the military, and yet, for all of his success, for all that he was, that for all that he accomplished, that doesn't happen. Why was that? Do you think? Um, I leave that to the leader, to, to the reader, to speculate. I mean, it could have been. I mean, he wanted a commission in the army, and. There could have been, who knows, like, who knows? Was he, did he go by his own rule book? Did he defy certain, certain things that the army was advocating? Was he too much of a, I, I don't know, really. I mean, they said it might have been his age, but he knew of other cases where that didn't happen. So I, I put that in the book because I, because he was such a successful person I wanted the reader also to know that he had setbacks, that we all have setbacks. We all have setbacks in our career. We have aspirations. We work really hard. We accomplish these amazing things, and we don't always get what we want, what we think we deserve. So I wanted to humanize him like that and tell that story about him. But he didn't have difficulty getting a great job. Uh, he was – and he – was really instrumental in helping organize the National Health Service in England after the war. So, yeah, I talk about some of the things that he that he did professionally and career-wise, but no, he did have that disappointment. He didn't get what he what he wanted and there's could have who knows what the real reason was. And yet I can't help but feel that he got something even greater in the end because as you described in his later years, he was greatly honored for uh, what he had done at Bergen-Belsen at the end of the war, how he had done so much to save so many lives and how that was there with, and that, that those accolades 
were were with him up to uh, up to uh, his death in 1972. Yeah, I think that was he that was his crowning achievement uh, was the liberation of Bergen Belsen, and something happened to him. Uh, he had like a watershed the summer after the liberation when he when his assignment there was ended and he kept going back to the camp almost every day and seeing how there was an amazing phenomena that happened after the liberation among the survivors who formed this community. And he was, he was admiring them. There were these young leaders that emerged that organized them and to, and there was, there was constant pairing up and weddings and, even though people weren't sure whether their spouse survived or not. See, most of the people who survived were in their probably 20s. You know, I would, yeah, 20s. My mother was still a kid, so she didn't belong in this category. She was among the sick people taken to Sweden. But in the camp itself, people stayed in this displaced persons camp. Some of them stayed up to five years after the war ended. And they paired up and they had, it was a, largest like baby boom in history like 2,000 babies were born after the war in the Glenn Hughes hospital they named the hospital after Glenn Hughes and those babies are now in their 70s <laughs> and, um, yeah and many of them knew know that they were born in the Glenn Hughes hospital in this unique time and place in history but they don't really know like who's Glenn Hughes they don't really know but it was a great source of pride for him. And uh, he was always, when he met survivors and their children, and he, and he really just delighted in their accomplishments, that they became normal, functioning members of society, that they accomplished great things in their lives. And he was, he just, he, he had close friendships with a number of survivors and they, they loved him, and he went to every one of their reunions. Uh, there would be like every five years, there'd be an event commemorating um, the liberation of Bergen Belsen, and he would be he would appear there, and he he helped them with some political issues too over the course of time, and he was he was there for them, and he even at his funeral he had a rabbi say a prayer for the martyrs of Belzin and he yeah and the book he did not talk about it to, in his personal life he didn't share very much with his family or his friends only sometimes with a, a colleague who had a similar kind of life experience who saw that kind of terrible thing and extreme but other than that he he didn't share very much and he had a very active life after the war just as before the war he was very he was a sportsman i mean he was one of the founding founding figures of rugby football in fact in writing the book i had to cut out huge things about his past about his schooling and about his his sports and on my website i have like an outtake a little bit of an outtake where i describe his his trajectory and as a rugby football player so, but he was, he was a remarkable person. So I was very glad to honor him by writing about him. I hope I, I hope I did his life justice. That's, I, I think you I did. Hope. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, I'm just in sort of the idea stage of another project, another book project. And, um, 
Yeah, so I, I'm not sure there's a story there. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I, the daughter of two survivors, so I have my father's story. I have all, I have some great details about his life and what he suffered. And it's really an, a story of an immigrant. It's really about a great American success story, uh, a hardworking immigrant who comes to this country and loves this country after having been a slave elsewhere. So I'm thinking of connecting my father's story perhaps to President Harry Truman who uh, created the War Refugee Act. My father came out on that, on that act. He was one of the first survivors to come to this country um, based on that. So. Well, I hope if that uh, idea matures into a book that we can have you back on the New Books Network to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome, Bernice Lerner. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.